Welcome to Talk About. On Talk About, our goal is to sit down with open-minded people for open and honest discussion. No judgment, no hidden agenda, just getting the conversation started. This week, we're joined by the genuine, kind-hearted, and hardworking Gary Pickering. Gary spent 27 years in the corrections field where he started out as a corrections officer, working his way up to warden. He wrote an amazing book called If the Walls Could Talk, sharing some of the experiences that he encountered along the way. We discussed that book and a few other topics in this delightful conversation. Sit back and enjoy the show. Cheers, my friend. Cheers to you, my friend. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for for taking the time and and coming on. You know, it was interesting because when I started this podcast, one of the things that I really wanted to do is talk to people from different walks of life with different experiences. And one of the things that has always interested me about you is is not just you as a person, but your career. Um, When we talk to different people, we meet people and we find out what they've done in their past or what they've done in their what they're doing currently you know, obviously career comes up and, you know, you spent 27 years in the corrections uh, field and I'm meeting you, you know, at a, at a chapter in your life where that, that is, you know, somewhat behind you, it's your past, it's not your present, but you know, you have these schemas about people and, and what personalities fit into what roles. And I have to be honest with you because I know you in a personal manner, your personality does not match this type of a field for me, <laughs> based on what I know. Yeah. Now, as it turns out, based on or what I know is nothing because I had a chance to read your book. So I oh, the, if the walls could talk. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I had to. I had to get that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And oh yeah. And and once uh, once I get to see you face to face, I'll get you to autograph it for me if you don't mind. I would love to do that. <laughs> but so, you know, it's funny, Chris. You you talk about the the book and. Uh, a lot of times, uh, whenever I was in social gatherings, uh, one kind or another, uh, inevitably, you know, people would ask me, well, what's it like uh, in there, you know? And so I would tell them a story or two about something that happened to me personally inside, uh, you know, I started at the Don Jail as a correctional officer. And, uh, you know, over the years, I was telling all these different stories, and and uh, a lot of times people would say, you know, you should write a book, man. So one day, a couple of years ago, I said to Jane, you know, my wife, I said, you know what, I think I'm going to write a book. And that's how that If the Walls Could Talk uh, got going. That's amazing. And, and I mean, I know from one of the things that I love about you and love about Jane is I love your relationship. And I've told you that time and time again, that your relationship is something that I look at as, uh, as being, you know, it's phenomenal. Like the way that you guys get, get along the things that you do together. And so to hear that this was something that was born out of a a simple conversation and no doubt Jane was, was fully on board. She, she did some of the editing. Is that correct? Yeah, she did most of the editing and, uh, of course, made uh, a lot of suggestions uh, because she's heard a lot of these stories. You know, I've told her a lot of these stories before I even put it into the book. So she was familiar with uh, with my career in corrections. And and I mean, the book is only a part of, of my whole 28 years. Those stories in If the Walls Could Talk are mainly 
uh, about when I was a correctional officer and, and uh, a supervisor right in the, in the, and I worked in different jails. I worked in the Don jail to start. Uh, matter of fact, you know, the, the year that I started in the Don jail, which was 1975, that was the year that they abolished the death penalty in Canada. But there was a guy who was sentenced to hang at that time. That was my very first day on the job. And that's a little story. That's the first story, I think, in that uh, If the Walls Could Talk book. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was an eye opener, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was actually something that caught my attention right away. And to be honest, I was I was actually taking notes and writing them, writing them in the book uh, as we went, just so that okay. way I didn't forget because there were so many cool little tidbits of, of information in there. And yeah. I had to look it up, the, the death penalty, because you had made that comment about death row. And I was like, yeah. wow, that was 75. Like, when did we get rid of the, the death penalty? And, and yeah, yeah, it was the, the next year. So like, how is that? It was that like, how was that moment for you in dealing with somebody that was on death row? What was the climate of the death penalty at that point in time? Was it being debated or did they just abolish it? Well, it was, it, yeah, it was being debated in, in parliament. But uh, I mean, for me, I wasn't thinking anything of it. In fact, when I went into uh, my first day on a job, I didn't know that I was being assigned to death row. I mean, because it was referred to as nine holding. And so I remember two supervisors uh, talking to one another, you know, trying to figure out where are we going to assign this brand new guy, you know? And, and one of them said, well, let's put him up in nine holding because, you know, he can't, nothing can go wrong up there. And uh, so, you know, to get into nine holding, uh, it took two supervisors to unlock the doors to get you in there. And then you were actually locked in, in front of the, the four cells, one of which was holding uh, Rennie Valancourt was, was the guy's name. You know, so I was in there. I had no idea this guy was sentenced to death or anything, you know. So only after did I realize what the hell. You so, know, yeah. I, yep. So when did you, uh, so when did they tell you that this was what nine holding was all about? Well, I found out because I mean, you used to get a break to go down and have a cup of tea or your lunch. And that's when, you know, in conversation with some of the other correctional staff, that's when I found out that, well, nine holding, that's the death cells. And, that, and this guy was sentenced to hang, you know, Wow. and uh, nobody told me what to do. I had absolutely no training. And uh, so what I thought I would just follow what was written in the logbook from the guy that was on there the day before. And I tell this little story in the book about, uh, you know, looking at the logbook and uh, one of the entries is, you know, 0710 dishes from cell. So I look at my watch and it's like, you know, it's 715. I'm late already. I tell this guy, I say, okay, give me the dishes. You know, he says, uh, I'm not finished. He was eating a, a Rice Krispies in a bowl uh, and a spoon. And I said, I don't, I don't care. I said, I need the dishes out of there now. And so he, he handed them out. You know, the next entry in the logbook was uh, dishes to kitchen, you know, 720. And I'm thinking, holy shit, I got to get these things down to the kitchen. So, but I'm locked in there. So I got to holler for, you know, I say guard, guard, five or six times. Nobody comes. So I look on the wall behind me and uh, 
there's a, it looked like a doorbell buzzer button, you know, those old mm-hmm. kinds of the black button. Yeah. And uh, it was on the wall and there was this wire that was leading up out to where the guards were, I thought. So I pressed it, but <laughs> I didn't know it, but it was the emergency alarm. And uh, God, talk about a commotion. I, I, you know, I could hear this big clatter outside and keys were being dropped and people were yelling, hurry up, you know, open the door. It's an emergency in the death cells. Well, and I'm standing there when they finally do get the door open and, and the, the supervisor, supervisors back then, they, they wore uh, white shirts. And uh, so there was about six of them there and about 25 guards. And uh, I'm standing there holding this, <laughs> this uh, yellow tray with a bowl on it and a spoon. And uh, the supervisor says, uh, did you press the emergency alarm? I said, no, I, I just pressed that button. No, that's the emergency alarm. He says, you don't press that at all. <laughs> anyway, that was my that was my first day. Oh my they called me ring for service pickering for about six months after that. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was hilarious. What a fascinating way to kind of kick off a, a 28. Is, is it officially 28 years? 27 or 28, 27, 28 years, 27. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's amazing. So now this is back in the seventies and you do talk a lot about, you know, lack of systems that were, that weren't there when you started. And, and a lot of it's, I don't want to say archaic, but it's, it's, it's an old system. Of course, when you start in there, what, what made you even get into the field to begin with? I just needed a job and I saw an ad in the paper and I think, the starting wage was four ninety five an hour or something, $4.95 an hour. And anyway, uh, I applied and I went for an interview and uh, they said, okay, you're hired. And, uh, you know, you can start uh, the next day. Wow. So there was no training at all. I had no idea what the hell I was getting into. The Don Jail now has been taken over by um, the hospital. It used to be Riverdale Hospital. But I think there's another name now for it. But anyway, they've kept, uh, they've turned all the old, what we call the old side of the Don Jail, which was built, I think, in 1862 or something. They renovated all of those, made them into offices and storage space and all. And and actually, they have, the public can actually go in there and walk around and see the way the cells look and stuff like that. You know, it's pretty interesting. I well, took Jane there about uh, a year and a half ago. It's uh, it's so funny because when I started reading the book, like two pages in, your first story, like you say, your first day, is the picture of above the door with with the lions and, and yeah. the decor and, and stuff like yeah. that, like above the outside doors. And yeah. I, I put it down and I called up Kat, my girlfriend, and I said, you're not going to believe this. But I told you I started to read Gary's book. You remember yeah. that place that we were standing outside last weekend? That's the place. That's the Don jail that Gary worked at. Like that's where he oh started his career. So I had no idea that that's where you had started this, <laughs> this journey. Yeah. And yeah. So I, I want to go in there, obviously, once everything kind of returns back yeah. to normal and things open up, I would, it's going to be amazing to have the context of what you yes. talk about. And you know, there were a lot of movies done in there too, Chris, you know, I oh, mean, really? cocktail was done in there. Oh, wow. Uh, Tom Cruise, I think, was in that movie. There was yep. another one, uh, 
Tony Curtis was in another one. Okay. There were some big stars did some, uh, they used it as a set after the, after they closed it, you know? Wow. That's amazing. Oh so, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's quite the place, you know, but that image that you're talking about over the big doors, mm -hmm. that is actually supposed to represent father time. Okay. We were trying to figure it out when we were yeah. standing there. That's what and, it is. Uh, part of the reason for you, you, you would have noticed how, big and uh overpowering those doors were in the whole entrance was to kind of make prisoners feel insignificant when they were brought in there so that was the idea of this this big doors and that father time over top of the doors you know i mean yeah. it looked intimidating from my perspective and i was nowhere near being inside of that institution so i could only imagine yeah. That, that was one of the things that, that stood out to me, one of the many things, to be honest. I, my only depiction of jail has been through movies and, and TV. That's, that's all yeah. my exposure is. And, you know, over time, you talk to different people about their perspectives on jailing people and, you know, the rehabilitation that goes into that. And you talked about being in the jail at one point in time, and you guys were in a lockdown, so you guys had to stay in uh, one yeah. of the cells is, is that correct yeah. and you were talking about the reverb in there the the echoing oh, yeah. and, like you said it was yeah. unbelievably noisy in there is that very noisy how is the feel of actually sleeping in there not even as a prisoner but just like sleeping no in it's there? it's it's not it's not a place that you want to sleep i mean believe me um the noise i mean even even in the middle of the night you know the noises carry through like I couldn't get much sleep in there at all. Mm. And uh, I don't know how uh, the prisoners do it, especially when you've got some guy who's acting out and banging on the door and screaming and hollering, you know, it's, it's not, it's not good. Believe me. It's not good. It honestly sounds terrifying. Um, I I've never really been in a position to be scared of jail. I just knew it was in place I didn't want to be. But even yeah. in reading your book, which, uh, you know, at sometimes is, is lighthearted because you do touch on some of the lighter, yeah. the lighter yeah, side of things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which we'll, we'll definitely touch on. But when you're talking and explaining, you know, transferring out of prisoners and uh, you know, that, that just that cold, desolate feeling, it, it conjured up some dread inside of me. Yeah. One of the other things that you talk about is, capital punishment versus, you know, jail time. Um, yeah. And you, ha your, your opinion on this changed a little bit from the beginning of your career towards the end of your career on capital uh, yeah. punishment. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. There were a number, actually, there were a number of things that changed. You know, I had different thoughts about one of them was capital punishment. When I first went in there, um, you know, my view was, you know, yeah, you know, string them up. Uh, anybody that commits murder should be hung or, you know, put to death. But I'll tell you when it changed, Chris, was after I became superintendent of the Peterborough Jail, and I started reflecting on this whole, I mean, capital punishment was already gone by then, okay, when I became superintendent. But I was thinking, if, if capital punishment was still around, and as superintendent, I would have to be directly involved with the execution of a human being. So, you know, how would I feel about that? And, you know, there have been instances where uh, innocent uh, people have been put to death. They've been found guilty. They've gone through the court 
but later on they've been exonerated. And you still read about these things happening uh, down in the States, you know, guys have been on death row for like 25 years and all of a sudden DNA came along and, and they were found to be innocent. Mm -hmm. So as a superintendent, you're, of course, you're not there. You don't see the, the actual murder being committed. So you have to rely on, on other people's judgment. Mm. And I just wasn't a hundred percent comfortable with that idea. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself, you know what? I would rather see somebody if they commit murder or rape or any other heinous crime, they should pay the price, but the price should be that they stay in jail for the rest of their life. And, and yeah, I mean, like it's, uh, I, I can understand it from that perspective, you know, to have that type of perspective of being the superintendent, the one that's responsible for carrying out this act. And then yeah. the, the process that that's a really good point that you bring up, you know, you, you, you can't account for the entire process that brought this person yeah. before you to, to make such a decision. So then what do you say to those people who, who say, they do believe in capital punishment. There's various reasons why people would, but they believe in it. And one of the reasons why I hear sometimes is that they think it's, first of all, they think it's a cost-effective way of dealing with uh, prisoners, which I've looked into it. Yeah, it's quite expensive for, it, for to carry out capital punishment, is it not? It's more expensive to have capital punishment. And the reason it's more expensive, or uh, some of the reasons, is somebody sentenced to death is allowed to exercise appeals and they could be on death row for years. You hear about it all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's very expensive when you have to have one staff member 24 hours a day, just watching over one inmate. Is that the, is that the protocol? Yeah. Like that's wow. that, like when I, that's why this guy uh, on my first day, he was sentenced to hang. He was the only guy there, but there was one correctional officer uh, sitting in front of his cell 24 hours a day. Wow. So it's very expensive. But the other reason too, though, Chris, is, you know, one of the most precious things that all of us have and we don't think about much is our freedom. If you put somebody in a cell, like say Bernardo, okay, mm -hmm. you put him in a cell 23 and a half hours a day, maybe he gets a half an hour exercise. How would you feel being stuck in that cell 23 and a half hours mm -hmm. a day, 11 by seven cell, you know, somebody's watching all the time or there's a camera on you, you know, it's not. <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest with you. I mean, you know, going through this pandemic, and this is by no way a comparison of being in jail, but there's periods of time where I'm kind of walking around my house bored out of my skull because I don't have the yeah. ability to just do what I want when I want to do it. Now, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure unless you're a sociopath and you're completely dissociative, that that's going to weigh on you. That, that has yeah, to that, break you down mentally, right? So fascinating. Yeah. So then you do believe in, in the rehabilitation of jail time. Is that like, is no. that? No. Okay. So please elaborate on that because you do touch a little bit on, uh, you know, and this stuff in the book and you, you start down that road, but it definitely sounds like something that's still a working thought for you. Well, let me put it this way. You know, there are a lot of uh, rehabilitation programs built into prison systems where they have, you know, social workers and psychologists and psychometrists and all these professionals who 
uh, are involved with inmates, but I came to the conclusion that unless the inmate wants to actually go straight, turn his life around, these programs do not work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds very good. You know, oh, we're going to rehabilitate this guy. But you know what? I think there should be more focus on having a deterrent. I don't mean torture inmates or anything like that. Mm-hmm. That, if, like if, if I knew that working in corrections meant I had to torture or beat up prisoners all the time, I would never have got into it. Mm-hmm. I just wouldn't have. But by the same token, I don't think we should be uh, molly coddling them and giving them, you know, things that uh, people out on the street that are working don't even get. Because when you think about it, Chris, inmates, uh, they get free medical care, dental care. They don't even have to leave their place of residence to get it because it's brought there. A lot of times I think, you know, prisoners are treated better than some of our seniors in seniors' homes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think there should be more of a deterrent. The jails should be a little more stark, I think. You know, maybe people would think, because nowadays, a lot of guys, a lot of times you hear about guys going in there, their friends are in there. Yeah, that's, ins- that's a, it's a, it's a, a ecosystem that's created and yeah, this is their a, lifestyle. A, yeah, their, their, their buddies are in there and, you know, it's like uh, old home week when they get, when they show up. Yeah. And, uh, it shouldn't be old home week. It should be, I don't want to go there. Yeah, that's that's a level of comfort that you never want somebody to feel that that should be being punished. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, a friend of mine, his uh, his brother served some time down in New Brunswick, uh, and a little bit of a different system down there, I guess. It, it felt like a, a real hometown, like homegrown feel where he was. And yeah. all I remember hearing is that, yeah, when, when he gets thrown in there, they bring him McDonald's and they bring him this and they bring him that. And I thought to myself, well, that doesn't sound so bad. And I think that this is one of the reasons why my interpretation of jail, uh, you know, through firsthand conversations was never really intimidating. Um, yeah. I'm sure that that's not ex- the full picture of it. And I'm sure that that's not exactly what ends up happening here, but deterrence it definitely sounds like the way to go so now the period of time that you spent in corrections you must have thought a different deterrence that you feel might work or something now that you're out of the field and you're not a superintendent it is there things that you think would be good to to implement to deter these people well like i say i i think they should be a little more cautious about what amenities they're giving of these uh, prisoners, you know, like, should they have color TV? Should they have uh, snacks in the evening? Should they get to choose their meals? Uh, th- these are things that are happening now. I don't think we should starve them. I think they should be, you know, given nutritional meals, but they don't have to be top of the line things. Mm-hmm. You know, I just think it should be a little more stark. They should have to sacrifice a little bit and realize when they're in jail, that being out on the street is better mm-hmm. than being in jail. I, I think it's a fascinating point. It's it's also one of those things that reminds me of 
one of the many things that you did when you were in corrections, like the, the thing that blew me away is the amount of change that you were part of and or affected. And one of those things that you had rolled out was, was like a work release program. What, what was the name of that program again? I called it the Extended Community Temporary Absence Program. That's right. Yes. Yes. And uh, what that was, was um, a program that I initiated when I was at the Peterborough Jail. Essentially, what it meant was that nonviolent offenders who were doing uh, less than 90 days, sentenced at less than 90 days, who had full-time employment and who had character reference from their employer and who had been recommended by the court. A lot of times the court would recommend a temporary absence program, but the decision for the temporary absence program came with the superintendent. So I would have to decide, is this guy going to get it or not? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I initiated this program where eligible inmates that I described there would be able to do their sentence at home. So it was almost like house arrest. But my thought was, if I let them go out and work, then they can continue to support their family. Why should the family be penalized for something that maybe the father did? Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, maybe it's his uh, third impaired driving charge or something. Mm -hmm. uh, a nonviolent offense. Yeah, it's frowned upon uh, by society. And there are some guys who continue to reoffend. They should definitely stay in jail. I, I have another idea about impaired driving too, that I'll, I'll talk. To oh about. yeah. I would love to pick your brain on that. Cause I have uh, personal feelings about that. So yeah, but the, this extended community temporary absence, I mean, it got cut, it got uh, covered by the press in Peterborough they interviewed inmates who were on it, and one guy said it actually saved his life. I don't know how, but uh, yeah, I mean, I have a copy of the article. That's so amazing. Yeah, you were also contacted by a California jail uh, yeah. to do with that yeah. program as well, as well right? Yeah, yeah they, wanted to, they wanted to try it there because, I mean, sometimes the, 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 the numbers of inmates that come into jail, there isn't enough room. I mean, mm -hmm. there's only, only so many beds, right? Yeah. So you got to try and balance it, I guess. I mean, the program was very successful. There was only two, two instances where I had to pull the participants off the program. One was because, because his, the guy's wife phoned and reported that he was drinking. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So he, uh, that was one of the conditions that I put on these temporary absence things was no alcohol. They were not allowed to have alcohol. And so his wife reported him. And the other one was, I think it was a female offender that was caught shoplifting. Mm. So there were only those two that I had to take off the program. So I mean, it, it also seems like it would work as a deterrent, right? Like you're kind of giving these people a, a taste of the outside world and then they have to return back to their sentence or they're majorly restricted, which is kind of right in line with what you're talking about yeah they always had that that threat of you know i better do things right or i'm gonna end up back inside yeah so yeah it worked that way yeah so talk to me about your ideas about drunk driving okay drunk driving 
I put this idea forward probably 20 years ago to the Attorney General of Ontario. Actually, I even met with my own uh, member of provincial parliament to discuss the idea. So the idea is very simple. Let me, let me preface it by telling you about what game wardens can do. Okay, yeah, please. All right. So if, if someone is out and they get caught by a game warden with over the legal limit or they shouldn't be uh, fishing in a certain area or they, they killed a deer out of season or something like that, the game wardens under the Game and Fish Act at the time, I don't know what it is now, but at the time, a game warden had the authority to seize all the equipment, including the car, including if they were on an airplane, a float plane, the game warden had the authority to seize all of that and the government would keep it until such time as it went through the courts. Okay. Okay. So this was my, my thought process. I'm think, and this is what I said to the attorney general. I said, if the government can take away a guy's car for poaching, for having too many pickerel in his, in his bag, why can't we take away a guy's car if the police can smell alcohol on his breath? Mm -hmm. Forget about fining them. Forget about, you know, putting them in jail. Just take the car mm -hmm. and keep it. Mm -hmm. And uh, if he happens to be driving uh, somebody else's car, too bad. Keep that car too. If he happens to be uh, a taxi driver, working for somebody else, too bad. Take that taxi and keep it. If he's a transport truck driver, take the whole transport, load and all, and keep it. Mm -hmm. Because when you think about it, let's say I come to you, Chris, and I say, listen, hey, Chris, my car broke down. and uh, Can I borrow your car for tonight? Well, you know me, so you know, wait a minute, hang on, this guy, he's a bit of a drinker. He's going partying, and he could, I could lose my car. And you'd say, no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this was the idea of just take the car. And I know this works, Chris, because over in Bulgaria, which was a very communist country that I happened to have visited, this was their law over there. 20 years oh, ago. Interesting. Okay. If, if the police pulled somebody over and they were, uh, they could smell breath, uh, smell their alcohol on their breath. They just uh, confiscated the car and they didn't get it back. And I mean, guess what? <laughs> A lot of people, instead of drinking and driving, took taxis. Yeah. I mean, it makes total sense to me. I, yeah. I really don't understand the, I don't understand the lenience to a degree. I mean, I know that there's some people out there that would, would debate whether or not, you know, the laws are lenient on drunk driving, but I think the fact that it happens time and time again, even, you know, currently happening and people yeah. are losing their lives due to it. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. So clearly there's not enough deterrent out there. I mean, I have this conversation all the time when it comes to drunk driving, when I was growing up, the, the rationale behind drinking and driving was, oh, I, I drive better when I'm drunk. And yeah. so that's what I heard when I was a kid and I would get into vehicles, you know, with family members or friends of family yeah. that were drunk. And yeah. that, that was the thought pattern. And 
there was nothing to deter them otherwise, right? So yeah. I, I don't, I think it's a, a valid point. So how was that received then? Obviously, it wasn't something that they, they went with. No, no, they, I think they thought it was, uh, well, the MPP that I talked to thought it was too draconian and uh, that, you know, the government wouldn't go for it. But I mean, they sort of, I think they do impound cars now mm-hmm. for not for forever, like I was suggesting, but I think they do impound them for a few days if they suspect somebody's uh, been drinking. Yeah, I think I think you might be right. I think that the whole drunk driving situation is interesting. It, uh, I mean, I it it makes me crazy to be honest with you when I hear ads for ex-coppers or, or whatever uh, legal representation is out there, you know, when they talk about making a mistake, you know, you shouldn't have yeah. to pay for making a mistake of drinking and driving. And I think to myself, well, that's not a mistake. That's a choice. I mean, yeah, you, exactly. you've, you've made that choice, whether you're inebriated or not, doesn't excuse yeah. you from the fact that you decided to get behind that wheel, yeah. you know? So yeah. I, I, yeah, that's, that's a tough, that's a tough situation. Yeah. I just, and you know, it's, it's one thing for, for somebody to be, you know, charged with impaired driving uh, and nothing has happened, but then you hear these just tragic stories of innocent families who are victims to a drunk driver mm-hmm. and a drunk driver survives, but the family gets wiped out. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's not right. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's absolutely right. terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Now, so let's get back to um, your philosophies and and things that might have changed over your tenure in the corrections field. So we we touched on corrections, but you said that there was a bunch of other things that you feel have, have changed with your experiences. What, what are some of those? One of the things that I learned in corrections was the ability to size somebody up pretty quickly, like within a couple of minutes. Uh, so I'm pretty good at figuring out what kind of person I'm dealing with in a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. And that was value, very valuable in dealing with uh, corrections, you know, because not all inmates are assholes, mm-hmm. you know, some of them are, you know, they're okay. I mean, I, I can remember we had, like, we used to have, um, what we call corridor men. And these were inmates who we would allow out to sweep up and mop up and, you know, clean around the range and, and do stuff like that. And I remember talking to one guy and uh, I like, I got to the point where I never looked to see what they were charged with. You know, it didn't matter. Uh, So I'm talking to this one guy and, uh, he, you know, got pretty friendly. And I, I said to him, like, Mike, like, what are you in here for anyway? Like, you don't seem like the guy that belongs, kind of guy that belongs in jail. Oh, he says, uh, I killed my wife with a hatchet. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, obviously I didn't size this guy up. <laughs> you know, but totally most sick. of the time, yeah, most of the time I'm okay, but, um, yeah, you know, the other, th- because this works two ways, because the inmates also size you up, you know, and they are very, very good at it, not only for sizing up correctional staff, or any staff for that matter, 
but they're also very good at sizing up a new inmate into the range. They can spot somebody that appears weak. You know, I mean, I can remember uh, at the Don Jail, this, uh, these parents brought, or their son, he, he was like 16, and he had been charged with something, some minor offense, and they thought they would put him in jail, leave him in jail to teach him a lesson. The bail was $1. You know, the other inmates very quickly picked up on the fact that this guy was a kind of a nerdy type, you know, weak guy, and they beat the crap out of him. And so when the parents came back the next day and they saw him, he had both eyes, you know, two black eyes. And, uh, you know, I guess the, the lesson learned there is don't leave somebody in jail. Get them the hell out of there. If you can bail them out, get them out. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, you you talk you talk about in the book. There is like this community. There was some inmates that had shared information with you, and there was certain things that were kind of taking place, and um, yeah. and that you would not rely on them because, of course, you can't put your life in their hands. But I would imagine that establishing a relationship with them to a degree can be beneficial to to you as well, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean. I think the one thing that uh, I always tried to do in correction was to be consistent, to be fair, and uh, tell the truth. Don't lie to these guys. Mm -hmm. You know, if they ask you something, tell them the truth. Uh, Sometimes they don't like the truth, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because you're telling them, no, you can't do that, or no, I, I won't allow that. But you tell them the truth, like, don't make promises that you can't keep yeah Uh, and the same thing applies in real life though outside you know you tell people the truth like you know i mean be straight yeah you know don't bullshit around just tell them the truth they may not like it what you say but more importantly than that is they they should respect you at least for telling the truth I absolutely agree. I mean, I think that there is a, there's a big difference between being an asshole and being straightforward with a little bit of empathy. And I yeah. think people appreciate that straightforwardness. Uh, you know, I've talked to so many people over the years and, and they, their attitude is I am who I am and I don't give a shit. And it's like, okay, well, that's fine. But how about I am who I am? And, you know, that's, that's okay. But, you know, show a little bit of empathy. So yeah. one of the things that I wanted to know from, like for you personally, you do talk about being honest with people in the book. You do talk about, you know, treating everybody with a certain amount of respect uh, yeah. and, and being sure. But I know you, like you're a teddy bear to me. You know what I mean? Like all the conversations that I've had with you, obviously not in jail, but all the conversations I've had with you and all my experiences with you, uh, I just figured well, this is, this is retired Gary. This is, this is the Gary that has, you know, put all that behind him. but that's not the case during your tenure there. Um, like I started, I started a little tab called Gary's many hats and, and all these things that you did when you were in corrections that yeah. what blew me away. One of them was swimming with a mother superior on your day trip with the nuns oh. and your, <laughs> yeah. oh, right. Like you're, you're doing things that, I wouldn't see a corrections officer of any kind doing. So this personality is obviously your personality. This isn't retired yeah. Gary's personality. 
where where did that Gary come from? Was that like an upbringing thing? Is that just something that you developed along the way? I'm always very curious about people and how they've developed themselves. Growing up in a small town, I think, had a lot to do with it. Because, you know, the little town that I grew up in, Temiskaming, uh, Quebec, which is up near North Bay, um, it was a small town, 2,500 people, but everybody watched out for everybody up. You know, I mean, and you were taught to respect your elders. Uh, it didn't matter who it was in the town. If they told you to stop doing something or uh, whatever, you listened. Because if you didn't and they told your parents, you would be in big trouble. Mm -hmm. You know, I just think that, you know, we should all follow that golden rule. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, you know... Chris, you say, I, I, I'm like a teddy bear. Yeah, I am like a teddy bear. I mean, you never did. And you always treated me right. So why wouldn't I treat you right? And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like that with everybody. I, I, I just like people, you know. It really shows in the way that you approach people now. And, and even, you know, you talked about dealing with your coworkers, your, your subordinates, uh, the prisoners, other people as well outside of outside of that realm and so it really shows through but you would have grown up in an era where new wave parenting wasn't even a thing you know the the talking it out i'm assuming wasn't necessarily the parenting protocol when you were a child i was a little bit spoiled okay because when i was about 12 uh my family when we rented a cottage up on a uh a little uh, lake called White Lake. My dad actually helped build the cabins up there. There was a small group in the town that built these cabins. He was one of them. And families from the town could go up there and, you know, take a cabin for a week at a time. So we were up there one summer and um, I'm going to, this will explain why I was spoiled, this little story I'm going to tell you. So my dad and I decided to go out in the canoe that day. And uh, he, was, he was a non-swimmer. And I could swim, but he was a non-swimmer. So I'm about 12, and uh, we're going to go out in the canoe. And he says, Gary, put that life jacket on. I said, Dad, I can swim. You can't. How come I got to wear the life jacket? Just do as I tell you. So, you know, we go out in the middle of the lake. We didn't know it, but the canoe was leaking. And so it started to fill up. And then we both took a, a stroke, a paddle stroke on, on the same side and flipped right over. So I, I still can see in my mind's eye, my dad's hand going under the water. Eh? So anyway, fortunately, I had the life jacket on because I got over to him and he, he grabbed onto the life jacket. I'm sure if we, if I hadn't had that life jacket on, we probably both would have drowned. Mm. But anyway, uh, I, and I told him, I said, dad, just kick your feet, kick your feet as hard as you can. And so we got to the canoe and then somebody from shore came out in a boat and got us back in there. And I, I just started bawling my eyes out. You know, I was, I mean, it was just too much for me. Mm -hmm. And my dad was okay. Like he had another beer, you know, but anyway, uh, so back to me being spoiled after that incident, I could do no wrong. 
Oh, wow. As far as my dad was concerned. So, and I have to tell you, I took full advantage of that. <laughs> you know, I got away with, like, my mother would try to chastise me for something and my dad would intercede and say, leave him alone, you know. And, and so I got away with, uh, with everything at home, Chris, when I was growing up. Well, you know, I I mean, I'm actually, I'm glad to hear that it was because you saved his life and not just because you were a boy. You know what I mean? Because, because I, there, there is definitely some guys uh, that have gotten away with murder over the years, just simply because they're the male in the family. But I mean, you, you saved his life. So uh, that's pretty legitimate reason. (laughs) That's a fair exchange. That's a fair exchange. So go. I want to go back for a second to this this many hats of Gary um, theory that I had because I, I I couldn't believe it as I was going through the book, you know you do talk about and you mentioned at the beginning of this uh, chat that you know when you started there was virtually no systems put in place and and you're responsible for doing so much in, in your tenure there that I want to list a few of them. I'm not going to go through them all because I really think people should grab this book. It's a, it's an awesome read and it's a really cool insight into, into that realm that you don't normally get. But I mentioned the uh, breakfast or the, the barbecuing and swimming with uh, mother superior. Oh yeah. I thought was awesome. Yeah. And I, I, I can add to that story a little oh, bit, please too, do. but I will tell you that when I was superintendent of the Peterborough jail, we had a halfway house for female offenders that was run by these two nuns in Peterborough. A halfway house was sort of a, just a, a residence where female offenders would stay under the supervision of these nuns. So Sister Bridget was the name of one of the nuns. And... Uh, they were. They did a good job. I mean, I I really appreciated what they were doing. So, as superintendent, I went up to the house one day and I talked to Sister Bridget, and I said, "Listen, I said I really appreciate what you know, the good work that you're doing. So I want to show my appreciation. So I, I got a couple of ideas. Uh, one is I could take you out to dinner at a nice restaurant, or I could take you out on my boat for the day." And, you know, I'm thinking, well, they'll go for the restaurant. Well, no, they didn't go for the restaurant idea. They went for the boat idea. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I, I went home and I told my wife at the time, I said, don't plan anything for this weekend because I said, we're taking a couple of nuns out on the lake. <laughs> so anyways she must have thought that you were pulling her leg when you said that she she did at first she (laughs) said what the hell anyway uh sure enough that saturday the the two nuns and the mother superior show up they have a basket full of uh, vegetables that they pick from their garden and uh so we get them on the boat we get out onto the lake shimong lake near uh near uh, peterborough and I throw the anchor in. And uh, in the meantime, the nuns, all three of them and my wife are up on the bridge and they're drinking wine and having cheese and getting louder and louder by the minute. And uh, it was a real hot summer day. So I said to uh, the mother superior, I think her name was Sister Bridget. Uh, Sister Bridget, I said, 
you want to come swimming? Oh, she says, I don't have a bathing suit. I said, that's all right. You can borrow one of my wife's bathing suits, you know, which she did. So the two of us went swimming off the back of the boat in, uh, in Shimon Lake. And uh, they took pictures of all of it. It was, I still have the pictures. That's amazing. But the, yeah, but the interesting thing about this, Chris, is that about three years later, after I'd left Peterborough, I got a call from one of my former staff there who said, you know, I guess you heard about Sister Bridget, eh? I said, no, what happened? Oh, she passed away. I said, oh, that's too bad. But they had pictures of this boating uh, day on display at her service, which I thought, wow, I said, you know, so, you know, it taught me that what might seem like uh, an insignificant gesture to somebody can mean so much, uh, which it obviously did for Sister Bridget, I mean, uh, and, and the other nuns who put these pictures on display there. So that was, yeah, that was just, that was a nice, that was a funny thing with, uh, that's a funny little story, but that's, it was, it was a good day. That's, it's a, it's a funny story. It's a lighthearted story. And it's a beautiful story because, you know, the way that you wrap that up with the, a seemingly, you know, insignificant gesture to somebody else, like you're just being yeah. yourself and obviously it impacted them. It, it reminds me a lot of when my mom passed and there was, like hundreds and hundreds of people showing up just saying, Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, I I met your mom once when we were at the hospital and she said this to me and she helped me in this manner. And I never heard those things from her uh, growing up. So, you know, people like yourself, people like her just living their lives and being who they are, are major, major impacts. So I love that sentiment, man, that, that really resonated for me. I mean, it was, it was, uh, like I say, it was a fun day. It was, it was a good time. That's awesome. Let's keep, let's keep with the positive for a few minutes. Cause I know we talked about some heavy stuff. Of course, it's going to be a bit of a heavy conversation, but one of the things that was definitely a theme throughout your book is you're a big believer in recognition, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Like you had mentioned a few times that you had done something and you weren't necessarily recognized for it. And then you've talked about situations where you recognize people. Um, And one of those instances that you recognize people is you created a badge for correctional officers. Oh, yeah. This blows me away, Gary, because this is not something that you could do these days. Like everything is so official and so by the book. So I mean, yeah. if you wouldn't mind sharing that, that's that's a phenomenal story. Yeah, that was that was uh, well. How it all started was I wanted a badge, like like uh, like the police officers have, and we didn't have badges in corrections back then. Uh, so I wanted a badge, and I also wanted to figure out a way that I could get this badge so it didn't cost me anything. So what I did was I got a. Uh, sample badge from a place called Stokes Cap and Regalia. They actually used to be on O'Connor Drive in, okay. in Toronto. And uh, so I posted a sign in the uh, staff room and said souvenir badge for sale. And so I tacked a dollar on the price of it. So I could pay for my own. Well, geez, everybody in the whole jail wanted one of these badges. I think I ended up ordering 
130 badges. So everybody was happy when these badges and these badge cases came in. And I happened to be in the admitting and discharge area there one day. And one of the transportation bailiffs came in and said, hey, I hear you, you can get these badges. I said, yeah. He said, can you get one for me? I said, sure. <laughs> so I got him a badge and I had his name put on it and, you know, provincial bailiff. And he was very happy. Anyway, he showed his boss this badge. And his boss says, this is, you can't have that. He says, I'm confiscating that badge. You can't have it. It's, it's not sanctioned by the ministry. Next thing you know, the ministry's inspection branch, which is like internal affairs and corrections, they come over to the jail. Oh, and I, should, I forgot to mention, I went to the superintendent of the jail at the time and said, listen, I want to get, I'm thinking of getting a badge like this. I said, I could get one for you and, uh, you know, yours would be gold. So he was all for it. So I got him a gold badge. Anyway, when the, in, the inspection branch showed up to investigate this, uh, these badges, the, the inspector says to, to the superintendent, uh, I hear some of your staff over here have these badges. And the superintendent takes, it out, takes his wallet out and says, oh, you mean one like this? Well, that was the end of the investigation. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, that's. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, what is it? Uh, what's the driving force there in your thought pattern of, of recognition? Why is that so important to you? Well, it's not only recognition in, in that sense with the badge, but also recognizing, you know, acts uh, above and beyond, for example, preventing an escape while, mm. you know, and I remember an instance at the West Detention Center in Toronto where Two officers, uh, because of their alertness, they uh, they prevented an escape. And, uh, you know, of course, they write up all the reports and everything. And uh, the inmate was charged with attempting escape. And, and uh, uh, by then, I think I was, uh, I don't know, senior assistant superintendent or something like that. And we had morning meetings. And at this morning meeting, I said... Uh, you know, we should send a, a letter of commendation to these guys. Somebody that was higher up than me says, no, no, we're not doing that. They're just doing their job, which I don't agree with. I mm -hmm. think they should have been recognized, you know, and there should be more recognition of positive, uh, it's like positive reinforcement. Yeah, you know? absolutely. absolutely. More of that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because you know, we're, we've talked a lot about your personality and we've talked a lot about your rising through the ranks. And I, I, I am a big believer in a lot of what you embody. I, I think that you can, I think you can be an effective leader and, and a, a, a hard leader when you need to be, but you can also be soft when you need to be and when it's warranted. Now you yeah. listed off, I believe there's like eight rungs on that ladder to getting to to a superintendent which is equivalent to warden is that correct yeah, yeah yeah and so you you attain that those ranks yeah all the way through yeah did you intend to do that because this this was a job for you back in 75 and all of a sudden now you're a warden uh yeah. many years later how how does that even work you know that's a very interesting question you know 
Chris, because uh, I, I never went into corrections with any idea of getting promoted or anything like that. And it, I, I actually was very fortunate to have this career in corrections because I got to do so many different things. It wasn't like, so I was just very lucky, I think. And I wanted to uh, try these different jobs and I would put in for these promotional uh, opportunities and you know I was lucky enough to get them yeah I mean being superintendent of, of the Peterborough jail it was like a dream job you know uh, the staff there were so good I didn't have to do anything uh, they knew what to do they did it there weren't any problems it was just a dream job that's amazing. And I'm sure that uh, I don't think this this is very much of a stretch. I'm sure that luck had something to do with it, but your work ethic is what drove you to to getting in those positions. Um, you, you, Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I, I do have a good work ethic. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of work. Um, but, you know, luck played a part too. But, you know, you can make your own luck. I totally agree. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I was lucky. I was lucky. That's amazing. And I was even luckier, though, Chris, when, when the government of the day, this is, so I've been retired for 19 years now. Uh, when I retired, back then, it was like 2002. And the government of Ontario came out with this uh, 80 factor, they called it. So if your age and your seniority, your years of service, totaled 80 you could retire without penalty okay so i made it by two months wow so it took me about 60 seconds to figure out i should retire <laughs> and so yeah 19 years i've been retired now that's uh that's remarkable i, I mean obviously you you put a lot of work in you, you must have put a lot of work in when you were there but was there a lot of competition for, for those positions? Because obviously the, those are career type positions that people are, are applying for. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there was always uh, several people applying for the same position always. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I would apply for a position uh, and I wouldn't get it the first time applying, but you know, you just uh, apply again. So, yeah. 19 years out of the game. Um, obviously, you still speak very highly uh, of the industry and the people that work in the industry and, and even of the, the people who you guys are taking care of, uh, the inmates themselves. You know, you, you do speak with, with a certain well, level. But I, I, I do have to tell you, Chris, that what I hear today is about the Ministry of Corrections in Ontario I would never recommend somebody get a job with corrections, put it that way, these days. Because there have been some very fundamental changes in the way they do things. And it's being being pushed by uh, people who I consider don't know what the hell they're doing. Mm. Politicians, for one. And, you know, trying to make political points. So, yeah, I do have a lot of admiration for the staff that work there, the correctional, the frontline guys and and women. But um, 
I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to be working in corrections today. Mm. You say that there's a lot of political influence now, the people that are kind of removed from, from the equation. Yeah. Is, is that what's basically at play? Is these, these yeah, people they don't are know what the hell yeah, they don't know what the hell they're doing. You know? is it, do you think that that's a natural evolution of something like this that has so many restrictions and so many regulations that you know people tend to create scenarios that they can impose even further restrictions and then it gets so far away so far removed from the people who actually know what the hell they're talking about that you get into a situation like this yeah i I think what happens is that uh, people who are changing uh policies and and procedures the people that are doing that are doing it in in isolation they're not really involving the stakeholders whether it's the you know, the, the frontline correctional officers or the supervisors or they're, they're just doing it on their own. Like they, they figure they know it all, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and uh, it, it's made for a very, I think, unsafe environment for both the inmates and the staff. Well, it sounds like you got in and out at the uh, the yeah. best times possible, uh, which which is is good. One of the things that I'd like to touch on, and then we'll we'll start to wrap it up, so that way you can get on with your evening, is uh, you talk about different things in in the book in terms of mental illness uh, and suicides. And I, I wanted to kind of pick your brain because obviously this day and age, mental, uh, mental illness is, is a big part of the, the conversation in the public, but it seems like it's been, a, or should have been the big part of the conversation in corrections for a long time as well, because as we touched on, you know, they go through a lot of mental strain too. Mm-hmm. You had talked about some instances with, uh, with having to deal with suicides and having to save people from those circumstances. What were your initial thoughts when you got into corrections about suicide and how did, how had that changed over the years in terms of facing it and saving some people too? Yeah, well, it's an interesting uh, topic, uh, both the suicide thing and the mental uh, health issues that, that are being faced by people. And I can tell you that about, I would say, probably 25 years ago, there were some major changes in the Mental Health Act for Ontario. And they were prompted because there were instances where people were involuntarily confined to the Queen Street Mental Health Center, uh, for one, um, who really shouldn't have been involuntarily confined. Which was actually a pretty common thing back in the day, even even in terms of... uh, you know, sexual promiscuity, that was considered a mental health issue back in the day too. So, yeah, no, you're right. And uh, so anyway, because of of these instances of people being wrongly placed into these mental hospitals, they decided to change the Mental Health Act. And when they changed the Mental Health Act, they made it much more difficult for uh, a person to be involuntarily committed. And so what they did was, that was one of the things they did. Consequently, people who normally would have been put in there for treatment, I'm thinking mainly of uh, people suffering from uh, schizophrenia. A lot of those people, uh, because they were not being placed in there and they started acting out on the street, behaving 
weirdly, and you know, the police would get called. The police, they were sort of in a moral dilemma. Like, what do we do with this guy? You know, I mean, it's not safe to leave him here on the street. Mm-hmm. So inevitably, they would take him to to jail, and they charge him with something, you know, some Mickey Mouse offense, and and figuring that okay, we get this guy in jail, and at least he'll get some help there. But the problem then in corrections was, what do we do with this guy? And inevitably, like even if we tried to assimilate them into the general population, the general population inmates had no use for uh, inmates who were behaving weirdly. Okay. And they would, they would do things like back then they had lighters or matches. They would light their shirt tail on fire or wow. whatever, you know, anyway. So to protect these guys, we would end up putting them in segregation and isolation, which is probably the worst thing you could do to somebody who's suffering from schizophrenia. You know, they're already hearing voices and stuff. Yeah. So the mental health act when it changed 25 years ago was to the detriment of a lot of uh, people suffering from uh, mental illness the other thing they did was they initiated this rule where the patient had to agree to take the medication. Here's the scenario. You have a, you have a person who is right out to lunch with schizophrenia, who's not thinking straight, who doesn't have any judgment, and yet they have to be asked, do you want to take this medication? Well, of course, they say no. You know, and once they say no, they're by law, they cannot administer it. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a case of where the pendulum uh, swung a little bit too far from one side to the other. And Which is often the case when it comes to, you know, things that are done, being done incorrectly. Right. They yeah. tend to swing too far the other way. Yeah, exactly. And that's what happened. And so you end up with um, a lot of. Um, people suffering from mental illness that end up in jail that should not even be in jail. They should be in a, a some kind of treatment facility. With learning more and more like about things like schizophrenia, you know, you, you are going to have to set these people up for better success than that because, yeah. you know, schizophrenics are there. It's not like down syndrome where it's physically, you know, you can see it. This is totally yeah. a mental thing. And, and they're, they can answer questions and they can talk, you know, yeah. so if and you, you know, ask them. Chris, if, they, if they are on uh, uh, prescribed medication, they can get it under control. But what happens sometimes is once it is under control, they feel, oh, well, I'm okay now. I don't need the medication anymore. That's right. And, uh, you know, I don't know how that can be addressed, but yeah, that's a, that's a big problem, you know. Yeah. Proper diagnosis would go a long way right out of the chute. So that way you can, you know how to address these people. But one of the things that you talk about is PTSD. And that's something that fascinates me. Um, But one of the things that really interested me is that you talk about you were fortunate enough to escape that fate. You had talked about some of your, you know, your coworkers and, and other people within the field that do suffer from it, but you avoided that. How do you think, looking back on that now, 
27, 28 years in the industry. You climb the ranks through seven to you know eight positions to be the warden of the Peterborough jail. And you come out of it unscathed for the most, most part. What do you attribute that to? I think it's just luck. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I think it's just luck, Chris. One of the things I'd like to add to that, going into it, you were well-balanced and you didn't allow the job to dictate who you were. Um, Now, I know you as a person now who does a lot of different things. You're an avid woodworker, a phenomenal woodworker at that. Um, You still get out on the boat. You know, you have a lot of time with the family uh, now and, and you and Jane are like two teenagers in love. It's unbelievable. Were you doing all of those things back then as well? Were those outlets for you or were you pretty committed as you started to climb through the ranks? Oh no, the boating, the boating was definitely, you know, a big part of uh, relaxing. And I mean, it it is very relaxing out on the, out on the water. eh? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, it was a big part of it. So it's probably, I guess, it would be massively important to be able to have those outlets then, especially yeah. in such a stressful job. I'm going to wrap up with one thing, I guess, is what do you miss the most of being in the corrections field? Well, I think I, I miss the staff that I worked with. I think, I mean, not all of them. There was some jerks, <laughs> but for the most part, I miss the staff because, you know, let's face it. The, we're all in the same field, so we knew uh, things uh, about each other, the, the things that we were going through uh, at work, and we, we could relate and understand. And uh, yeah, I think that's what I miss. Excellent. And final question, what don't you miss? What I don't miss is getting up every day and having to face traffic to get to work. Ah, yeah. Um, and I guess that's, a, that's, that's the thing I, I don't miss. And I mean, I, I just love being able to do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. I love it. And, and you, yeah. and you have the, the physical and mental ability to do that, which, you know, yeah. some people, they don't end up getting, uh, you know, after they retire again, yeah. putting all that upfront work in really paid off. That's awesome. Listen, um, is there anything else that you uh, would like people to know or anything like that? I could give you the final word, or if you want to wrap it up on that, we can definitely wrap it up on that. I think this has been good. I've enjoyed the conversation with you. Your questions have been very insightful and uh, I appreciate the opportunity you gave me to talk about myself. Hey, (laughs) Listen, I mean, this book is amazing. If the walls could talk, uh, it's it's a fascinating read. Uh, very short stories, a couple of uh, big stories in there, which uh, we'll talk about another time, of course, because okay. you know there's some very fascinating things in here. Thank you very much for sharing your ideas in the book. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your time in person with me today. And uh, other than that, give my love to Jane and uh, I can't wait to see you guys in person sometime soon. Yeah, me too, Chris, and thanks for having me.